0: Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us, verse one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey friends, we have an incredibly special guest today on the School of Unlearning podcast. I'm honored to introduce Dr. Gay Hendricks to you. here's a little bit about his background, and then I'll tell you what to expect from this pretty epic conversation. Gay Hendricks has been a leader in the field of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford University, Gay served as a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, and Conscious Loving, which he co-authored with his um, partner for more than 35 years, Dr. Katie Hendricks. Both of these uh, texts have been used in universities across the world. And his latest book, The Genius Zones, helps explore his breakthrough process to end negative thinking and live in true creativity. In 2003, Gay co-founded the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which distributes inspirational movies and conscious entertainment to subscribers in over 70 countries. Gay's offered seminars seminars worldwide and appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, and 48 Hours. In addition to his work with the Hendrix Institute, Gay's currently continuing his new mystery series that began with the first Rule of Ten. In this incredibly juicy and personal conversation today, we cover some of the following things. Uh, What Gay's early life influences were with his parents and his grandparents, his first encounter with Ram Das in his early 20s and how he struggled with how Gay struggled with his weight from a very early age and how he was able to overcome that and really understand he is pure consciousness beyond the persona that he had been playing, how Gay defines enlightenment and why he believes recommitment needs more press Gay also talks a lot about the role of self-blame and criticism and how they can color and even block creativity, and how he believes that we can nurture ourselves into more creative expansion and living. We talk about at some point in the podcast, the role of taking radical responsibility for the dramas in our life, the things that we co-create. And Gay encourages us to think that, to really embrace the concept that taking radical responsibility is a space of creativity and is actually very invigorating, whereas we normally associate it with blame. Um, Gay walks us through how generational trauma influences how we view our lives and the patterns we create and how we can break those patterns. The last couple of things we talk about are equally as important, the role of congruence um, and why it's so important for our aliveness, And of course, the role of emotions um, for us to be able to embrace who we really are on this planet. Shout out to Gay and Katie Hendricks, who are pioneers in this field, who have dedicated their life to um, uh, studying and understanding and sharing the human experience in both science and both spirituality and the mind-body connection. If you want more of of what you're going to hear today, please visit the Hendricks Institute and uh, please read any and all of Gay's books because they are truly transformational. And I thank you for listening to this podcast. It meant a lot to me to be able to sit with Gay and I, I hope you share it with the people you love and uh, please download and save for future reference because it's a good one. Thanks, friends. Hi, Gay. Welcome to the School of Unlearning.
1: Thank you, Alisa. Great to be with you.
0: I've been um, a student of yours for many years. And like we were saying before I hit record, um, your work has really struck a chord with me from really about how I think about relationships, both in work, and then also in like personal romantic life. So um, just a shout out to you and to Katie to being pioneers in this field for for doing the work. And like this is just a, a genuine thank you for, for showing up the way you do. It's helped millions and millions of people. So I want to just start with that, um, just expressing gratitude.
1: Thank you. It's a great honor to be in a position where I've learned something about relationships and life that can be helpful to other people. So I appreciate it very much.
0: Tremendous. One of the questions, Gay, I love to ask all guests in the very beginning is just to understand more about their origin story. And so I, I know a lot about your work through your books, um, and, and some of your books allude to early childhood experiences, um, memories with coaches and parents and influential loved ones. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about who were the early influences in your life that helped shape who you are today and, um, and who influenced you.
1: Well, I was born into a very unusual family. I uh, grew up in Central Florida and a big formative event in my life was that um, even before my mother knew she was pregnant with me, my father died unexpectedly at age 32. And so my mother was left with a seven-year-old son, my, my big brother, and uh, but she didn't even know she was pregnant yet. And then a few months went by after the funeral and everything, and she thought she was just you know under stress, maybe missed a few periods, but then it turned out she was pregnant with me. And so that set off a whole other flurry of uh, stuff. So I was born in a very inconvenient time and place and way. Mm-hmm. Um, and but fortunately, I also was born into a family that was very close around each other. Um, down in the south, sometimes it's common for families to, you know, like, uncles up the street and Mm -hmm. cousins around the corner and that kind of thing and so uh, my grandmother and grandparents lived in kind of the big house and then around that were my house with my mother and my aunt and uncle's house and then another aunt and uncle's house down the street so it's kind of like a big family compound in a way and -hmm. that played to my advantage greatly because my grandmother took me under her wing when I was born because my mother wasn't in very good shape and so i was um lived a lot of my early life uh with my grandparents in a in a big house that was uh, about a hundred yards away from my uh, mother's house mm-hmm. and so that was really good for me because i I had an escape valve all the time I could always go to my grandparents mm-hmm. and they were always uh uh I was kind of an adored grandchild by both of them and uh so that was where I went for my big dose of love every day. And so uh, my grandparents were a huge influence on me. And then later on, after I was about six or seven, I moved over to my mother's house and I lived there for uh, the rest of the time that uh, I lived there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, another big formative thing, uh, my mother stopped eating when she, when my father died and she went from 120 pounds when she first got pregnant with me to 89 pounds by the time I was born. And so she kind of starved herself Um, uh, and she was five foot 10. So she was a fairly good sized woman. And so she looked like a scarecrow when I was born. Mm. And apparently that reset some glandular thing in my body being starved for all those months uh, because it reset a thermostat in me. So everything I ate turned to fat. And so mm-hmm. basically I was the only fat person in a family of skinny people. And they were ta- they took me around all over the place to different medical um, specialists when I was uh, a kid and I got lots of shots. And I, mm-hmm. when I was 13 or 14, I got put on this radical diet, which involved taking uh, amphetamines and all these other pills and So I, you know, I spent a a year of my life, the ninth grade where I couldn't sleep much. And so I made straight A's that year. And uh, um, but as soon as they took me off the pills, everything crashed again. But I really didn't solve that problem until I chose one day to take it into my own hands when I was 24 years old. Mm. I had I had a a very powerful enlightenment experience when I was 24 and I weighed 300 and some pounds and I smoked Mm. heavily. I smoked uh, cigarettes heavily. And I was in this terribly troubled relationship that I'd been in for a couple of years. And I was working at a crappy job that, you know, I didn't have $39 to my name. So I couldn't really do anything about getting out of the relationship. So it was a classically massively stuck situation. So it led to a big enlightenment experience though where i realized that i could redesign my life i realized that at the center of myself was nothing but pure consciousness and from that place of pure consciousness i could channel that consciousness to create a slender body and a better relationship and so within a year i lost 100 pounds which i still have kept off to this day and uh, i'm uh, Now, let's see, 50 some years away from that experience, but um, I lost 100 pounds. And so I'm, you know, a six foot tall person, 180 pounds. So I look tall and athletic Mm
0: -hmm. rather
1: than looking like a pear, which I did in Mm -hmm. those uh, days. Um, But it also helped me discover my life, too, because I realized that who I was at the core of myself wasn't anything like all the personas I'd adopted to Mm. get through Mm -hmm. life. And Mm -hmm. so I, uh, you know, the old saying is, uh, life is like an onion, you peel off one layer at a time, and sometimes you cry. And so that became my life was peeling off one layer after another of who I wasn't, to discover who I really was. And that took me years, you know, Mm -hmm. not just a year, but it took me a year to peel off the weight. But I. uh, I discovered so much about myself that I discovered that I knew I always wanted to be a writer, but I thought I wanted to be a creative writer, a novel writer. But then I discovered I wanted to write about the human experience and the human condition Mm. and the human experience in counseling. And Mm. so interestingly enough, the first three things I ever got published were three poems in a counseling journal about the, the process of counseling. And um, I that led me then to start writing books that were more personally based rather than, you know, I'm a Stanford Ph.D. So I was taught to, you know, to cite all the studies and uh, to to know the literature, which I do. But I found that that wasn't all of what we needed to do in our field. You needed to come from the heart and you needed to know yourself. Uh, And and people could only, your clients could only know and love and appreciate themselves to the extent that I've known and loved and appreciated myself. And so I discovered that in the beginning, I thought counseling was something I did to my clients. Mm -hmm. But now, and for the last 50 years, I realize it's a creative invention between me and my clients, that it has nothing to do with what I've learned, but like you say, it has everything to do with what I've unlearned Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. because I learned to overeat when I was in the grip of feelings like sorrow and anguish and anger. I had to unlearn that to stand in front of the refrigerator instead of raiding the refrigerator to just stand and let myself be awash in all of those feelings mm. as I stood in front of the refrigerator. And so mm. uh, that was one thing that attracted me to do this interview, <laughs> the title of your podcast, because I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've said to my students that life is partly about learning, but it's a lot about unlearning because in a way we all have to get to that point where we say one day, "Gee." everything I know is wrong.
0: Mostly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and that's a
1: great day to to, uh, begin to really unwrap yourself from all the layers Um, that we become parcelized in.
0: Yeah, this is a beautiful entry to your story, your childhood, early adulthood. I'm curious, in those moments where you realized you were in your mid-20s, you were in the wrong job, or at least the job that was causing a lot of drama, the relationship that was causing a lot of drama, your body was not Being cared for in the way that you knew you could care for it, right? Um, You had this epiphany, this shift of like recognition that the personas, the the roles you were playing weren't actually your soul. Was there a key piece of literature, a poem, uh, a person that helped you make that shift, or was it just this true moment of like awakening?
1: Well, I think that um, at least a lot of my clients have told me, and I believe that they needed to bottom out before they could. Kind of get a bounce off the bottom and start upward, and I feel that that day was my bottoming out. And literally, I created an accident in order to uh, teach myself this lesson. I I went out for a walk. It was a snowy day after a snow had fallen in New Hampshire, and my feet. Sh- oh, and I I went out to kind of clear my head after a big argument with the woman I lived with at the time, Linda. And we lived on the grounds of a boarding school in New Hampshire where I was a teacher, counselor, wrangler for a dormitory full of 24 juvenile delinquents. And that was my job right out of college. And um, so there I was kind of stuck in this life. And I went out for a walk and I stepped on a sheet of ice underneath the snow and my feet shot out from under me and I went down on my back. And, you know, 320 pounds is about what a refrigerator weighs. And so Mm. when I hit the ground, I literally bounced off the ground and I banged my head. Although fortunately I didn't knock myself out, but it knocked me out of my normal conception of myself for about two or three minutes. And during that two or three minutes, I had this amazing vision of kind of like seeing down through all the layers of myself. I saw that I had this, all these inches of fat around me that were to insulate me from all the feelings I didn't Mm. want to feel underneath. So Mm. I overate to keep my feelings at bay. That was a huge moment because in that moment, I just let myself feel all my anger, and my sadness, and my fear, and everything, instead of trying to hide it under the fat, I just let myself feel it as I was laying there on the ice, and then I got to a place underneath all of that, that was the magic place of what I call pure consciousness, which I think is our birthright, everybody has it, that's the place in which we have no judgment, we are just who Mm. we are, Mm. and so we haven't added that framework of I don't like who I am or I hate who I am or why can't I be somebody else or why can't I be like the Beatles or all of that? (laughs) Why do I have to be the way I am thinking? And so in that moment, I just went beyond all of that and I rejoiced in about two minutes of this amazing feeling of pure consciousness. And that feeling is still with me at this very moment. So it never goes away. And so I've chosen to live my life out of that feeling because in that state of pure consciousness, we're free to reinvent ourselves as we please. We're Mm -hmm. down where creation comes from. And Mm -hmm. so I made a decision to create a healthy body and a healthy relationship and a healthy job where I was feeling daily an enliven, a sense of enlivenment. Mm-hmm. And so I started making my choices out of that. And like I say, within a year I'd lost the weight and gotten out of that job and I was in a better job and I was getting my master's and then my doctorate in counseling psychology. So all of this magic began in that moment. And here's the thing, I don't know if you've found this in your work, but I bet you have uh, in a way. I think almost everybody that seriously studies the human condition will come up with this insight that it's almost as if we need to create these situations that gradually get the lesson to us, even if Mm -hmm. it takes us a wham on the ground or a car Mm -hmm. crash, or like a friend of mine drank himself into a state of oblivion and ended Mm -hmm. up three weeks in the hospital. Uh, and realized, wait a minute, why am I killing myself at age 32? You know, I've got all this life to live. And he rebirthed himself. And, you know, here he is strong, going strong at uh, age 82. I see him all the time because he rebirthed himself as a sober, contributive human being and has Mm -hmm. since gone on to make multi-millions as a consultant and that kind of thing. And so once we get on the right moonbeam, we get to be unstoppable. And you even, and here's the thing I've discovered, is that you attract into your life new people that support your new intentions. Like, um, stop me if I'm going along too here, but I just got to tell you one more element of the story. Yeah. Within a couple of days after I had that enlightenment experience and I dedicated myself to this new way of being, I decided to stop eating anything that I'd eaten before because my theory was everything I'd eaten before made me fat. So I'm going to eat nothing now except things I've never eaten before, which was (laughs) largely fruits and vegetables. And and so I ate my first piece of broccoli and and, and I, I found out these things like carrots were delicious. They were like candy, (laughs) you know? And so, um, So my diet started to change right away. But then guess what happened? Within a day or two, a friend of mine, Neil Marinello, still alive and well and practicing uh, psychology in Woodstock, Vermont today, he was another teacher at this school. And he called and told me that he was going up the road 30 miles to listen to a lecture by one of his old Harvard professors that he really wanted to hear because the, the professor had had a big life change. And mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, I've heard a lot of professors. What, what, what is his life change? You know, I didn't know if I wanted to tie mm-hmm. up my, my whole afternoon listening to another university lecture. Uh, so he said, no, no, this is really something different. He's gone to India and he's had a big enlightenment experience and he calls himself Ram das now. He ah. doesn't call himself Richard <laughs> Alpert anymore. And so, you know, you want to come with me. I think you'd like it. So Neil picked me up and we rode up 30 miles up to Webster Lake, New Hampshire. Beautiful, big estate we walked on to, which turned out it was Ram Dass's father's estate. Uh, Ram Dass came from a very wealthy Jewish family. His father was a big fundraiser for the United Jewish Appeal and an industrialist. Mm. And anyway, very wealthy man. And so we walked onto the grounds of this beautiful estate and there was like nothing i'd ever seen before there's ram das wearing white robes Mm -hmm. and he's got all of these disciples around him which are mostly young men and women maybe early 20s and they were all had long hair and indian garments on and yoga clothes now i was an english major i never took any spirituality classes or anything like that Mm -hmm. i was always lukewarm on religion i never got into it in a big way. And so I had never heard of yoga and meditation and all that kind of thing. But this was my introduction to it. So we sat down in a big circle, maybe uh, 10 or 12 of these kids and Neil and I and a couple other people. And Ram Dass started talking. And he talked for three straight hours without any notes. And he was just talking from the heart about his experience and what had happened in India and how it had changed his life and what he was feeling now. And I was just mesmerized because, you know, even for teaching a bunch of juvenile delinquents, I always went into class with my detailed notes and Mm -hmm. my activities Mm -hmm. for the hour and my lesson plan and all that. And, you know, there, there I was in a situation where I couldn't make any sense of where was he getting this information. And so afterwards I went up to him and I told him that, you know, there I am 300 pounds. I got my Marlboros in my pocket, you know, still. And I said, uh, I found this fascinating, where do you get this from? And he kind of chuckled and he said, well, it's just there I go in and there it is and then I give voice to it and then I go in and I get some more and I give voice to it again yeah and this does not make any sense to my linear mind at all Mm -hmm. and and he had this eight by ten picture of his guru an elderly grizzled looking man old grizzled Indian looking man and so he would hold it up occasionally and Ah, and kind of get inspiration from that. But I just asked him point blank. I said, look at me. I just had this wake up experience yesterday. What would you recommend that I do? Yeah. Kind of scan me. And he said, well, he said in India, he said over here, you might go and get some therapy. But in India, you might go learn some breathing activities and yoga Mm. to learn to kind of celebrate your body because it doesn't look like your body is being well celebrated by Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. (laughs) boy was that right you know and so i said well where would i get this information and he made this little dismissive movement with kind of a hand flap he said oh something will come to you and then he turned to this other person and started talking well i went to the grocery store later and i was checking myself out at the stand And I looked to my left, and there was a little kiosk of paperback books. And in those days, paperback books cost 65 cents or 95 cents back in the 1960s. And what kind of jumped out at me was one of the 95-cent ones, one of the expensive ones. And what it said was Yoga, Youth, and Reincarnation by Mm -hmm. Jess Stern. And I, I picked up the book. And it was a complete book of yoga postures, breathing exercises, meditation activities. I mean, it was like everything I wanted right there in one place. Mm -hmm. And I bought it and I took it home and it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I started, um, started doing the processes just one after the other. And so by midnight, I got to the meditation chapter. And I started doing this very simple meditation they recommended, which I think was something like to close your eyes and just go. And I did that for about two minutes and whoosh, I was back in that pure consciousness state Mm -hmm. again Mm -hmm. without having to fall on my back on the snowy road and, you know, injure myself. And so that was a moment for me, a very insightful moment. And it, led me i've probably said a thousand times in lectures and keynotes the universe is happy to teach you your lessons by tickling you with a feather but -hmm. if you keep not paying attention it's also very happy to teach you the same lesson with a mallet over the head and i've had both of them and Mm -hmm. i now vastly prefer the tickle feather uh type of lesson so may i learn any lessons from having to fall on the ground again by wisdom rather than experience let me learn the lessons by pure wisdom just as i walk through the world
0: yeah okay that's an incredible story a lot of pivotal moments in there and what you just said like listening to like the feather like it's almost like just noticing noticing and paying attention to intuition versus having to be hit over the head by you know making the same mistake or ignoring your your, your knowing or your your bodily sensations, and I think universe does that. Um, may I share a story that is a little bit similar to yours? Sure. When I w- just reminds me of the the concussion when I was 22, I got hit by a car and uh, got a really bad concussion. I was out of uh, consciousness for about four hours. Mm-hmm. I woke up and I, I had been a very happy go lucky kid, and then I was really depressed from this concussion, mm-hmm. from this trauma, and. Within months, I was, you know, trying to come back to my breath, trying to figure out how to work through this. The medical system was just like, take drugs, take drugs, you're depressed. I said, okay, but I just had a physical injury and no one's addressing that. I had this moment in, in some ways similar to what you experienced where after one phone call with a mentor of mine, she said, I'm going to send you a book. And I said, okay, I'll take anything because I am, you know, like this, this anxiety, all these things are very new to me. And I had just finished playing college basketball, so I was in tune with my body, but in a different way. And so the concussion symptoms hadn't gone away yet. And she sends me a book, and I open the book, and it was called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And it's an American Buddhist nun. And I had never, I never thought of, it yes. yeah, I'd never thought of the concept of letting things fall apart and actually learn how to be okay with the uncertainty, the the uncomfortable feelings, and and not to just race in and, you know put the puzzle back together. And so that was, I was 22 and it was this moment of breadcrumbs for the rest of my life. I bounced around to a meditation retreat, learned to come back to my breath, followed people. You know, I eventually became aware of your work in my early thirties, but, you know, I had this moment where I was sitting at a stoplight in upstate New York. Um, and, and I was still really struggling And I remember there was just one stoplight. It was one post office, one movie theater, this is town in upstate New York where I was living at the time. And I remember looking up at the sky, it was bright blue and the sun was out. And I remember thinking, this can't be happening to me. It has to be happening for me. And I hadn't read your work yet. I hadn't read the work of Jim and um, Diana um, Chapman, uh, Jim Duffner and Diana Chapman's yet. I hadn't known that language yet. And something in me, was like this this is for you somehow this is for you and so that began a a similar journey in like looking for these these signs and these uh moments of love from the universe that these things you can make this into whatever you want to make it and uh that kind of brought me to your story I wasn't thinking of sharing that but your story sort of brought that out in me and um and then I, I kept finding your work and other people's works. And so here we are, um, decades later, when you, when you talked about making this commitment to, to lose the weight and get into the world of breath work and yoga, you talk a lot about in your book, the genius zones, um, that commitment, um, gets you in the game, but it's recommitment that gets you the goal. I tend to think that recommitment needs more press, needs more PR.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we'll talk so a lot about
0: commitment. So tell us about your journey in recommitment and why it is so important for all of us as we encounter life's ups and downs.
1: Well, it gets into another subject, which is uh, great to talk about, uh, too, the upper limit problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my first classic upper limit problem about a month into my new eating routine. So I started eating fruits and vegetables. I remember I had a bunch of blueberries. I ate blueberries a lot and salads and things like that. And so I was just trying to eat things that I'd never eaten before. And so within a month, I'd lost about 30 or 35 pounds, which is, you know, 10 percent of my body weight as a 300 pounder. It was beginning to be noticeable. A 270 pound person is still fat, but still it was, you know, significantly less. Mm -hmm. And so people were beginning to compliment me on that. And so I was walking down a street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, 1969, and I looked in a window of an ice cream shop and I saw this family of four eating an ice cream sundae with bananas on it and all this kind of stuff. And so I just completely went into a trance. And I went in there and I got myself a whole one of those, you know, for for one person. And so I sat down, started eating this thing. And for about 20 minutes, I was unconscious and just as high as a kite, you know, that uh, all that sugar pumping through me. But then 20 minutes after that, I got the worst stomachache and this heavy depressing feeling Mm -hmm. came over me. I, now I react to sort of minute amounts of sugar. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have, you know, a little bit of extra sugar, it sends me off on a whoosh in my body and not an unpleasant whoosh either. But in those days, you know, I guess it took a lot to get me off and so, this big amount of sugar blew through my system and then led to this really depressed feeling of meaninglessness of life. And, oh my God, what have I done? And now I'm going to weigh 300 pounds again. And in that moment, I realized, no, wait a minute. What I need to do is acknowledge this and then use the energy of it to make a new commitment, to make a Mm. recommitment, to get back on the horse, so to speak. Um, And so I did that. I had, "Okay, Ah, I make a recommitment to bringing forth that pure consciousness in my life and living from that space. And so I went right back onto my diet again. And I just kept doing that over and over again. I'd I'd lose 15 or 20 pounds and I'd hit an upper limit and I'd blow it for a couple of days and I'd get back into it. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that for a year, I ended up you know, a 200 pounder rather than a 300 pounder. And no, I think the old saying is true. The last 20 pounds are the hardest, uh, because it took me a, a few years then to get down from 200 to a healthy, you know, muscular state of 180, like where I am now, by the yeah. way, I work out at the gym three days a week. And even though I, um, Had to use a walker to get around at the gym this morning. I still went down to the gym for my (laughs) uh, workout with my uh, workout buddy, and so um, I'm a big believer in recommitments. You know that I always tell my students that uh, we we function like the automatic pilot on an airplane. Mm -hmm. That it the pilot sets the coordinates to get from, say, New York to L.A., and then it drifts a little bit and catches itself and then recommits to where it's going. And -hmm. then it drifts a little bit in the other direction and Mm -hmm. then recommits and it gets back on the beacon again. And so it does that literally thousands of times between Mm -hmm. New York and LA. And so the punchline is that it gets you to the destination by being wrong most of the time. And you can get that (laughs) way in life if you're willing to recommit. Because yeah. if you're willing to say, okay, that didn't work. Let me go this way. Okay, that didn't work. That was too much. Let me go back this way. So you mm-hmm. gradually kind of calibrate yourself through life by following, it almost seems like uh, there's a Kathleen Raines poem from long ago called The Invisible Way. Mm-hmm. And it says there's an invisible way that takes us through life. Birds know it. Birds get Pull through on some kind of sense of invisible ways, or an even better example. There are these sea turtles down on the coast of Argentina, that they go all the way out 1,500 miles into a little three-mile island called Ascension Island to lay their leg eggs, and then they come all the way back to the coast again, three thousand yeah. mile round trip. Yeah. And they've been doing this for hundreds of millions of years since it was all once since before there was an ocean there. And so they have this invisible way that pulls them there. And I think if we're sensitive to it, especially pure consciousness, if you're sensitive to it, can help pull you around to where the good things are, because you kind of feel like, oh, it would feel better to go in that direction. Mm. That would that would Mm -hmm. make me feel more alive and enlightened and Mm. oh, let's go this way or this person over here would be a better source of nutrient for me than this person over here. So to me, enlightenment is partly about saying yes to more Mm. and more things of life, saying yes to your feelings, saying yes Mm. to your Mm -hmm. spirit, saying Mm. yes to your thoughts. It's also about saying an enlightened no, Mm. No, I don't want to spend time with those people anymore. I don't feel good around them. Mm. No, I don't want to eat a quart of vanilla bean ice cream right now. I think I'd rather have an organic apple. That would make me feel more nurtured, Mm. you know, because my old 300 pound body would not hesitate. He would eat the quart of ice cream. Yep it took a little bit of refinement to be able to appreciate an organic apple to the same extent that you appreciate a quart of vanilla ice cream. It takes time, right? Yeah.
0: Um, As a a chocolate, uh, former chocolate addict, I understand what you mean. One of my favorite (laughs) foods on the planet. Um, As I think about your definition of enlightenment, I really appreciate the language of sort of like this alive and yes and there's also this alive and no towards the current, the energy that is guiding us and I love how you say if we're paying attention I think what comes up for me is uh, for those of us who are highly sensitive or in this work all the time, um, I am paying attention a lot and then I also gay okay, find myself having to just question and unlearn um like my body wants to do this, but my, my narrative or the world or programming says no this. Um, it could be about anything from who I date or, um, making more money or less money. And so I'd love for you to speak a little bit of how we have to unlearn the programming of what the world gives us and listen more to this, this, this current that moves through us of consciousness of what we actually are, what makes us come alive.
1: Yes. Um, I, I appreciate you mentioned earlier, the decade of the thirties, and Mm -hmm. I want to say a special something about that decade Uh, because uh, in developmental psychology we say in your 20s you experiment you Mm -hmm. try on different lives lifestyles uh, ways of being that kind of thing you sink a lot of dry wells you make a lot of mistakes quote mistakes you know that uh, they're really just experiments but a lot of times you see them as mistakes because they're so painful your 30s are a tremendous decade because in your 30s, in developmental psychology, we say in your 20s, you experiment. In your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. In your 50s, you enjoy your life, your 50s, 60s, 70s. Now, I want you to enjoy your life now, no matter where you are. But the trend is because of the turmoil involved in a lot of the discoveries you make in your 30s, It's not always a very serene decade because (laughs) you're up up against learning things like old things you've been scared about since breath number one, things Mm -hmm. that you are scared about that aren't even yours that's there because your parents were scared about them or your grandparents and it just left tracks in your body. So here we say at our institute, when you take your first conscious breath, ah. whether you're 30 or 40 or 50, you need to be willing to do three uh, three lifetimes of work. Your work, your parents' generations, and your grandparents' generation. Because you were a fetus inside your mother when she, I mean, you were an egg inside your mother when she was a fetus inside your grandmother. So you mm-hmm. were subject to three, generations of vibrational learnings of one kind yep. or the other now maybe in like when i was being gestated this big shock wave came through of my father's death mm-hmm. and my mother never recovered from it mm-hmm. and so my body had that frozen in place too so i had to go through lots of ah generational mm-hmm. breathing mm-hmm. to get to my own breath to get to where it was just me breathing for my own self instead of trying to breathe through three packs of Marlboros a day. My mother was a chain smoker. Did I even have any choice about whether I was going to be a chain smoker? No, because I was a chain smoker along with her, you know, until my 24th birthday and when I changed my life. So there's a lot of unlearning that has to be done year after year. And a lot of it has to do in the 30s. So Mm -hmm. a lot of us take our first big conscious breaths in our 30s where you begin to feel the possibility of creating a separate life that's not so influenced by the past. That's a beautiful thing. And here's another thing, a wink into the future, just a little peep into the future. When you get up into your 40s, you often encounter a crystallized, version of one of those little bits of stuff. You know, maybe it's a need for approval. Or maybe it's a need for control. Those are Mm -hmm. two really big ones. Uh, And those are often inherited from past generations. Mm -hmm. You inherit your mother and father's and grandmother's need for approval or need Mm -hmm. for control. Mm -hmm. And then you just think that's the way life has to be. Mm -hmm. And so That's why it's so important to be jostled around a lot in your 20s and have your heart broken a few times and have your illusions dashed a few times like I did and you probably did. And Mm -hmm. every other sentient being being probably does. So Mm -hmm. that's a painful thing, but a good thing because it shakes you up out of your sense of the way things have to be.
0: Yeah. Um, two words came to mind, three words. When I think about my 20s, and this is just my experience, I think about I had a lot of bravado, a lot of dreams. You couldn't tell me nothing. I was going to go out there and do the things and get the thing and (laughs) graduate from the thing, you know? Like, let's go world, like bring it on. And my 30s has been just like this deep sense of humility. Like, oh, (laughs) this is not nearly what I thought adulthood was going to (laughs) be.
1: Well, you know, it's like that old Fireshine Theater album you can one day you realize everything I know is wrong. More or you less. Know? And yeah. it's a moment of, I had that just in my early thirties, that thing of, wait a minute, maybe everything I, I know about relationships is wrong. And because I had created one relationship disaster after another, right. if I had gone out and had, seven different car crashes in a row I might get to say oh maybe my way of driving has Mm -hmm. some problems with it but that never occurred to me in the relationship area I just thought I was maybe cursed sure uh, or or that was the way women are women are just that way they will always when the chips are down go off and leave you you know that was my mentality and so one day in my 30s I realized wait a minute Maybe that's just my programming. What do I want Mm. in a relationship? And I came up with my three things. I want a relationship where both of us are absolutely honest with each other. So nobody has to go around saying, is something wrong? Are you feeling Mm. something? And the other person goes, oh, no, 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 no. Um, Mm -hmm. So i would had that. I didn't want that. I wanted a relationship where not only did people tell the truth all the time. But they took responsibility all the time, where yeah. instead of yep. going for the victim position, this is your fault, this is nothing, you know, and this is, why are you doing this to me? Instead of that victim BS, instead of that, to take responsibility <laughs> for what comes up. Yep. You know, that was exhilarating to me yeah. when I started doing it. Yeah. And the third thing was to create a partnership with somebody who was so passionate about their creativity that they weren't jealous of mine because mm-hmm. i've been in relationships where you know as a writer i go in a room and disappear for 2 or 3 hours a day yeah that's my discipline that's my yeah. joy that's my yeah. passion yeah and if and if the other person isn't okay with that then it's 3 hours they're not getting to spend time around me sure. you know where i don't see it like that at all i think creative solitude and my position was also why don't you get some for yourself do something like that for yourself and then sure. instead of complaining to me about mine so Finally, I found a partner when I was 34 years old and Katie and, yeah. you know, in our first conversation, I said, listen, here's what I want. I want honesty. I want taking personal responsibility and I want total commitment to creativity. So on those terms, you want to go have a cup of coffee with me? Literally, that's what I said. And she did. And we we're here 44 years later.
0: Gay, okay, that is that story. I'm smiling so big for those of you who are listening on audio. That is a beautiful story. And I love it. And I love the candor and like saying it up front, you know, I've gotten really bad dating advice in my thirties where people are like, just let it play out. Don't say what you want. I'm like, no, I think you should say what you want. I think you should say it very soon. Um, Yeah, definitely. For theirs and for ours. I want to talk about responsibility. It's a big, big topic of your work. Um, And, and I, I'm at the point in my life too, in my career, obviously I do conscious leadership coaching. And so I, I help people in the corporate world and people who are interested in breaking relational drama patterns take responsibility for the drama in their lives, loving responsibility, right? Um and, and I think about this idea of co-creation. Like I, I just got out of a relationship. I've you know had some things in my life happen in the last couple of years, and I think to myself, how did I co-create the results? And I know that's a big part of your work with with Katie, is just looking at responsibility. And um, I guess I'll leave it as an open question. Do you have any advice for people who are out of a drama pattern and are really looking to, to take responsibility for what they've co-created and, and how mm-hmm. they can do that lovingly without blame and criticism and self-denigration?
1: Well, first of all, a beautiful question. And I wanna celebrate that because the great poet, e-, e. Cummings said, it's always the beautiful question that gets the beautiful answer. And so um, taking responsibility is an exhilarating, action. Hmm. But where most of us get confused is responsibility was used as a substitute for blame. Mm-hmm. In other words, who's responsible for this mess on the floor here? Yep. Yep. You know, that's the kind of, that's using responsibility as a club, you know, a, a, a cudgel to hit people with. But actual genuine responsibility is, it, it opens up a great question. And one of the great questions is, of all the possibilities in life, why was it essential for me to create things the way I created them in that situation? Mm -hmm. Mm. Why, like one of my first moments in my, uh, uh, in that transition in my early 30s, I was in a relationship with a woman that I think we sort of loved each other but she was very critical of herself and myself and so I was always complaining about her being critical (laughs) the irony of that is not lost on me now but (laughs) I was criticizing her for being critical Uh, but and she was always criticizing herself and just basically kind of looked for what was wrong all the time yep so one day I started to surface in my mind this question of, why is she doing this to me? Why is she always so critical? And I realized, wait a minute, why do I require a critical woman in my life to complain about? And then I realized, wait a minute, from the very moment of my first moments of existence in the womb, I was a subject of criticism. Because from the very moment my mother was knew she was pregnant with me, she fell into a deep depression and basically lived on coffee and cigarettes and went from 120 pounds down to 89 pounds on the day mm-hmm. of my birth. And so she lost 30 pounds while she was growing me. So no wonder I had this upside down relationship with weight where my body just put on weight any way it could from anything I could eat and so and it took many years to unwind that pattern but once I did you see then I have three generations or at least two generations of free creative energy that I can draw on and that's Mm -hmm. the big benefit of taking responsibility for for creating things the way they are you get out of the victim position and you put yourself in the place of creativity. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. How did I manage to create a relationship with a critical woman? And why would I do that? Oh, boom. I've had that always. So what would be the bold step here? The bold step would be to create a relationship with somebody who's not critical. What a concept. You know, and it took me several iterations of that to find the right one. But once I did, I mean, Katie and I can go literally for decades without anybody saying anything critical. As a matter of fact, we've lived in this particular house. We kind of found our dream house uh, in 2001, so 20-some years ago. And there hasn't been a critical word said in this house. So since the turn of the century, Mm. Nobody's criticized anybody. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so imagine the amount of creative freedom that that evokes if you go through your life not criticizing yourself or not being criticized, you have your attention on simply creativity. And so in this house over the past (laughs) 23 years, we've written half a dozen books, uh, two or three bestsellers like Big Leap um, Mm. and uh, Five Wishes. And we've also launched several businesses. And so it's been a time of just pure creativity for the last, during this entire century. And so I have to go back into the 20th century to even remember how to go about criticizing myself. And I just as soon forget about it. So as soon as everybody kind of wakes up to that, Put your attention on loving yourself unconditionally for all your faults and flaws and foibles. Love mm-hmm. yourself for them instead of criticizing. It it's it, it frees up a tremendous amount of energy. And so the act of loving yourself for the things that you've previously shamed yourself for, it's a radical act, but it just evokes all sorts of positive energy. You feel it coming out yourselves like. I mean, yeah, I feel it as at this moment, you know, and this is the way I've felt for the last 50 years. So I just don't, I just don't know how to turn it off.
0: That's amazing. One thing that's coming up for me around responsibility, it's actually a creative move. Once we do it, it's an invigorating move. And I totally fully agree with you. Sometimes for me, when I take radical responsibility for like something I've co-created, it's almost like I, I can't even remember how I made those decisions, got in that because I can see it so clearly, you know, like what I did and why I did what I did. Um, And this idea of creativity, it does breach into this topic of feelings. I think one of the reasons we avoid creativity and you know this better than I, so I'd love you to speak on it. One of the reasons we avoid creativity And growth and our our potential is because criticism and um, judgment take up so much of our mental real estate. Now you say in your book, and I've heard you speak about this too, that we do this because we don't want to feel the feelings. And, And feelings are so hard to feel, the sensations, the actual emotions that in lieu of that, we will just criticize, use resistant language like should and should not and create narratives that are very victim oriented, because we simply don't want to feel the feelings. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you've it, it, and any practices you actually have too on a daily or weekly basis to feel feelings to allow them to exist to move through you? And and how that gets to be such a big part of our creative block is our lack of desire to feel feelings.
1: Yes, one thing to help understand that, Elisa, is that your brain is about the size of a good-sized grapefruit. Mm -hmm. It weighs about three and a half pounds. And the rind on the grapefruit is about the amount of space that's occupied by your thinking mechanisms. But the juicy part of the grapefruit is the amount occupied by your feeling Mm -hmm. mechanisms. So your thinking mechanisms are recently evolved. It's the rind of the grapefruit. Mm. It's the outside layer of your brain. And so down at the center of your brain, down at the brainstem are simply the functions that are keeping you breathing and keeping you warm right now. But then the juicy part of the grapefruit, the limbic system is all about fear and anger and sadness and joy and thrills and compassion and all of these beautiful things of life that are in the juicy part of our our living and our mind is here to it's a recently evolved thing that's there to help us solve problems mm-hmm. in a more efficient way and so now we've come up with language which is even more efficient because I can say Oh, move that chair over there, it's gonna catch fire near the fireplace. And somebody can move the chair instead of having to wait till the thing catches fire. Mm. And so that saves us a tremendous amount of time. And so we now have this beautiful, we have a being mechanism down at the center of our brain that's just pure being, warmth, breath, Mm. heartbeat consciousness. And then we have the layer of feelings, fear, anger, sadness, joy, compassion, mm. the joy of listening to Mozart at high volume in a symphony hall, mm. the the joy of watching your child at his or her first ballet performance, or, you know, things that evoke the quality of loving other people. Those are beautiful things that are in that limbic, juicy part of the grapefruit. But our minds are incredibly important too because we need to learn to use our minds to make choices that bring us more good things rather than the corrupted use of the mind, which is to block positive energy and create more pain because you don't feel lovable inside. If you don't feel lovable inside, you're going to create scenarios that punish yourself um, somehow Mm -hmm. because you don't feel like you deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as possible, love yourself for having that way of being, honor yourself, just realize that you're in it like the rest of us and love yourself yourself. For everything you've been shaming yourself for, and make life a process of learning to love yourself more and more each day. Uh, that was actually the book I wrote first The summer I met Katie, was Learning to Love Yourself, yeah. and it's still here in print 44 years later, mm-hmm. um, and has helped three or four generations of people now learn to honor their feelings instead of shame themselves for everything they feel inside.
0: Um, I was actually, you answered the question next, which was really, how do we nurture ourselves out of criticism and judgment and that that spiral? Um, it takes think- place in tiny moments,
1: tiny moments of loving yourself, a tenth of a second at a time, mm. or ten seconds at a time, where you catch yourself feeling angry, And instead of making up a story about the other person and being the victim, instead, you just purely... <sighs> Breathe with it. Love it. Dance with it. Open up to it. Celebrate it. Mm. That's what you have to do with it rather than uh, shame it or put it or shove it back into yourself.
0: I took a class with um, I think inspired by uh, Katie and her team and you about interviewing anger and anger, the intelligence of anger as an emotion. Mm. Um, Just that it's a jacket emotion that it often covers up more vulnerable emotions, perhaps like grief. And it was a really profound class. And I remember leaving thinking like, you know, one of the times, Gay. I don't remember feeling a lot of anger as a kid, but I remember when COVID hit and all of our social worlds fell apart and some of us were just, you know, all of us were more or less alone and or with someone else alone, like we were pretty quarantined, at least here in New York City we were. Um, That was the first time I remember feeling anger and I couldn't understand it. It couldn't really resonate with it because it felt so icky and and heavy, you know. Um, But after taking the course around learning how it's a jacket emotion and that I was actually grieving the loss of friends and routines and rituals it made such sense. It felt like a felt like a gift of energy versus a, a burden. Um, once I learned how to talk to the emotion effectively,
1: I really appreciate that because it's so important, especially with the emotion of anger, because many people shame that emotion and try to put it away. Uh, but I like to think of energy, uh, uh, anger, and sadness, and fear as where energy is going. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like a way of expressing energy. A lot of us don't realize too that we have feeling zones in our body, like your chest and throat are places that recognize or that reflect uh, sadness, you know, feel a lump in the throat or a constricted feeling in your chest. Uh, Fear is a lot of times felt in the belly. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The feeling of butterflies in your stomach, a lot of scientists think that's the feeling of blood rushing out of your stomach toward the muscles when you get scared in fight or flight preparing for fight or flight. Anger is a tricky one because a lot of times uh, the place that it shows up is in the back and the back of the neck and up your shoulder blades and tightening the muscles. You start to get a headache, for example, and then Mm -hmm. realize that the headache was just a jacket feeling over the anger. And then you realize the anger was just a jacket feeling over some sadness or fear. that you didn't know how to deal with. Uh, Whenever I talk about feelings, I often use the phrase jackets and rackets, because a lot of us learn to use a feeling as a racket, too, to get people's attention away from a core feeling you're feeling. Mm -hmm. So you spark off an anger and piss off a bunch of the people around you so they don't see how sad and scared you are. Mm. And so they relate to you on a on a on a uh, anger level.
0: It's really a vulnerable emotion, you know. It's it provides pathways to vulnerability if we if we sit with it. Um, you know, I want to talk to you about this concept around congruence, um, which is a big part of conscious conscious loving and conscious relationships. Is making our inner world match our outer world and how difficult that can be at times with people who maybe they're not practicing these skills or they're not necessarily in tune with congruence and everything. But I just this idea of matching worlds, I think is really important. And I often feel the best when I match my emotion with my experience, where I express the thing I need to say. And I'd love you just to share a little bit about how you view congruence and matching our inner and outer worlds and how important that is for relationships.
1: I really appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, congruence is an important value in our world and an important thing we teach. Um, one of the reasons that we teach a body centered approach is that your body can be your biggest enemy or your best friend in the in the area of congruence. Because, mm-hmm. for example, let's say you feel some sadness in your chest. hmm. Well, if you let yourself experience that, it can lead you to do something productive, like go talk to the person that hurts your feelings mm-hmm. or just take some time and ah, nurture yourself, you know, like your dog or your cat. If, if mm-hmm. they get stepped on or something, will kind of retreat to the corner and kind of nurture themselves for a while. So sometimes solitude. Other feelings have different things like anger. Has a fairness component to it. Sometimes you get Mm -hmm. angry because things haven't been fair. You've seen unfairness toward yourself or somebody else, or you've seen outright violation that brings Mm -hmm. forth anger also. Mm -hmm. Fear is a tricky one because fear is at the base of a lot of different feelings that people cover up. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, think about it every time you're angry at something you're also scared about something. Mm-hmm. And you're also sometimes sad about something. You, you've lost something at the same time. So you have to think of yourself as a parfait of feelings, a uh, parfait mm-hmm. from the French word meaning perfect, you mm-hmm. know, layers mm-hmm. of perfection. And a layer of anger and a layer of sadness and a layer of fear as you go down deeper into your body, a layer of sexual feeling and sensation, a layer of uh, sheer power feeling. All of those things are intrinsic to us and that we need to kind of reveal about ourselves. But you know, from where I started, I'm so far from that now because I remember the first time somebody said, What are you so angry about when I was in my 20s? And I said, I'm not angry. Yeah. You know, whereas how ridiculous that was. I had 17 layers of different anger in me that I'd never expressed, or I was busily putting on 300 pounds to mask it. But how arrogant of me to say, I'm not angry, and I'm not sad, or I'm not scared. I don't have any issues. What an arrogant thing for a 20 some year old to say, but I did say them. And so um, that's a long way to come from, but we have to start somewhere.
0: Um, I think that, yeah, congruence has been one of like the cornerstones for me. I've started to in the last couple of years, revamp my life values. And one of my values is responsiveness or expressiveness. Like that I I value being responsive to my body, my mind, my spirit, and like, meaning not ignoring myself, not gaslighting myself. If I go through something sad or difficult to like acknowledge that and that currency has helped me move through these emotions and, and not pathologize things anymore and just be like, Oh, I'm a human sentient being, having a sad moment or a happy moment. Mm-hmm. And like letting that, that's been very a huge unlock. And I obviously give credit to you and to a lot of people in the field who've helped develop a language for this. Um, So all of us in our apartments in New York city can feel a lot better about our our human (laughs) waves. Well,
1: I I appreciate that because uh, one of the things that I really want human beings to do is to celebrate our humanity. Mm. And um, uh, along those lines, um, I wanted to uh, uh, let your viewers and uh, listeners know that uh, I'm... um, coming off six weeks out from a bad accident where I broke my femur in Mm. five different places. Mm -hmm. I had a slip and fall on a rainy day out by my swimming pool. And I broke my femur and had to be carted away to the trauma center and spent two weeks in the hospital and have spent three weeks rehabbing it. So I'm still creeping around on a walker. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't have my usual uh, endless boundless energy. So I'm beginning to fade a little bit. And Uh, as it happens, my computer says low battery. So I think Ah, it's a metaphor for my life. So I want to appreciate you for your good questions and uh, wind things up soon.
0: Absolutely. Um, I would love to just end on this question here. Um, Well, two questions they will combine. What is it you're currently unlearning, if anything, right now? What are you still unlearning?
1: Well, for the last six weeks, I've been unlearning a macho sort of I don't need any help persona you know because mm-hmm, for the mm-hmm. last six weeks i I've, I've needed a lot of help you know i've you know when i was in the hospital i needed help on everything but now mm-hmm. moving around the house i can't do certain things that i could do if i was on two legs all the time so uh having to ask for help that's been a big one yeah um, you know learning how to just receive it's been liberating but it's also been a challenge
0: for sure. And what? how would you define unlearning? If you were to give it a definition or words or even felt, a felt sense, what what comes to mind when you think of the concept of unlearning? Seeing
1: something that isn't working and trying something new.
0: Mm. 100%. Okay. Um, we wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you for your, your intelligence, your life experience, and your presence today. It's been um, very, very appreciated here.
1: Thank you for the good wisdom out in the world. Blessings to you.
0: Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to this School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.